Tonight on Farage, the country is about to be plunged into the worst rail strikes since 1989. We'll debate, is there any justification for this strike at all? We'll go to France. You've heard nothing about France, have you? No, but we could be on the verge of getting a very hard left wing. So left wing, he makes Jeremy Corbyn look right. French Prime Minister, we'll talk about that. And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by a retired Labour MP and a man with a personality and a sense of humour. They're rare commodities these days in politics. Stephen Pound will join me on Talking Pines. So the RMT are leading the way. They're being joined by Unite and indeed those working at Network Rail. Yes, the plan is very simple. A national rail strike which will take place on the 21st, the 23rd and the 25th of June. Staggered that way so that it means that trains and shifts will be all over the place. Effectively, there will be no trains in this country for a week and no London underground either. What's it all about? Very simple. In times of inflation, trade unions always demand pay rises. I suppose, in fairness to them, they want to defend the interests of their members. They're looking for an 11% pay rise and a guarantee that nobody is going to be sacked that works on the railways. Is this justified? Is it reasonable? Let me know what you think. Farage at GBnews.uk. I have to say that during the pandemic, uh, the railways had to be bailed out by £16 billion of public money. Much of our network effectively has actually been nationalised. They're running at a loss. And even though London and other cities feel like they're back to normal, train travel is 25% lower than it was before the pandemic. I would argue to Mick Lynch, the leader of the RMT and others, uh, that actually, whilst I understand they want more money for their members, they're lucky not to have suffered mass redundancies already. Because that, I'm sorry to say, is the state of our railways. And to ask for an 11.1% rise, well, of course, they want the retail price index number, not the consumer price index number, which gives our official inflation rate at 9%. The government, of course, are resisting. But it's not to say that this standoff with the rail unions is not the beginning, perhaps of something rather bigger. The last big strike on this scale was in 1989, but those of us old enough to remember the 1970s knew that it was strikes, 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 one after another, sector after sector. And if the government was to give in to this union, then all that does is further add to inflationary pressure. So I would argue, Mr Lynch, that actually this strike isn't justified at all. You're going to have to accept a pay rise that is below the rate of inflation. And yes, you must fight hard to try to make sure the number of redundancies is as few as it possibly can be. But with 25% fewer people travelling on the train, I'm sorry to say, Mr Lynch, redundancies are coming. If this government does not stand up strongly to this trade union, if it buckles, if it gives in, then I'm sorry to say, in my view, we'll be back to the industrial strife we saw 
back in the 1970s. Maybe not quite the winter of, of discontent, but something along those lines. Well, joining me is an expert in this field, Alan Jones, industrial correspondent for PA Media. Alan, good evening. Hello. Is my analysis too harsh or have I got it right? <laughs> uh, well, as you know, PA Media is a we we we, we give both sides of every argument, every dispute. Yes. So I think you've set the case for the prosecution. Actually, <laughs> um, uh, you've got a few things wrong. If you don't mind me just correcting you on a few things. In fact, travel is down back up to about ninety percent of what it was before the pandemic, Nigel. And um, the, one of the main strands of the union argument is that they haven't had a pay rise at all for the last two years. Um, you're quite right that there was a big bailout during the pandemic, but also during the pandemic, the rail workers were kind of lauded as the many COVID heroes for carrying on working. So, you know, as far as the unions are concerned, they should then have been rewarded with at least some kind of pay rise. They haven't been given any pay rise. Okay. They're facing quite serious job losses. There's all kinds of rumours about cuts to their pensions, you know, working conditions. So what, what do you expect unions to do? That This is what they do. They try and protect jobs. They try and protect pay, try and get a decent pay rise. Um, and this has all come together. Uh, in the, I, I don't think there will be a summer of discontent, actually, but this is certainly a big moment for the railways. And at the moment, I can't see any kind of resolution to this. But look, you make a very, very fair point, Alan. Uh, and you're quite right uh, that so many of these men and women that work on the railways and the underground did work right through the pandemic, exposing themselves perhaps to more risk than many others. And I absolutely accept that. I get that. I accept that. And, you, and, it's, and it's a very fair point to make. But when you're working in an industry that's been running at massive losses, whose volume is down, inevitably, there have to be some job losses, don't there? I mean, I wouldn't say not, necess not necessarily. You know, I mean, everyone from the prime minister down is trying to get people to go back to work in offices. Um, and for, for a lot of people, that means travelling on trains. So, you know, it does, it does seem a bit odd while you're trying to get people to go back on trains, go into work, into offices to regenerate city centres. You're also talking about, you know, cutting jobs and what, what impact that might have on, on services. So, you know, that's another argument the unions are making. You know, the railway unions want a flourishing railway. Of course they do. Um, you know, they want more jobs. It means more members for them. Um, and this is not just the RMT, by the way. You mentioned United going on strike yeah. in London. Uh, Aslef, the train drivers union, they're involved in several disputes as well over pay. I mean, obviously, if they go on strike, no trains run at all. Um, they're not at the moment, but this is not just the RMT. You know, all of the railway unions are kind of together on trying to get some kind of pay rise, trying to protect jobs and conditions. Final thought, Alan, from you. Do you see any sign of resolution between now and the 21st of June? I mean, there's nearly two weeks to go. So, you know, there definitely will be a meeting between Network Rail and the RMT later this week. Um, so it's possible that might be resolved, which will be big, because if the signals go on strike, you know, it doesn't matter what the train operating workers do. Um, there's no hint at the moment of anything moving on the train operator's side. But, you know, I think they're going to have to make some kind of pay offer and then we'll take it from there. OK, Alan Jones from PA, thank you for joining me and putting the other side of the argument and doing it very fairly. Thank you. Now, of course, this means that so many people planning events all over the country will find themselves potentially in real trouble and possibly very seriously out 
of pocket. Now, Jamie Love, who is a PR man and an organiser, he's one of the organisers of the Pride event in Edinburgh, and he was expecting tens of thousands of people to get the train to go to this particular event. And whether it's Pride or rock concerts or you want to go to a test match in Leeds or whatever it is, the trains are really, really important. Jamie, what does this do to your festival, potentially? Hi, Nigel. Thanks for having me. So in terms of what it does to our festival, it means that it could probably cut down our attendance by 75%. Uh, the majority of people that actually come to Pride Edinburgh come from outside of the city. Um, these are people that need the event, that don't have you know spaces like Pride Edinburgh offers anywhere near them. Um, and we're talking about people traveling in from you know Glasgow, as far as Aberdeen, or even as far as London. Um, so I would say that it could potentially hinder 20,000 people getting to um, an event that's very important to them, to their identity, to um, how they feel about themselves. So, um, yeah, it, it could definitely impact the numbers. Well, as I said, you know, in that week, there are test matches. There are, there's even talk perhaps of Glastonbury being affected. So, you know, whatever yeah. you choose to go to, whatever you feel that you, uh, you know, belong to, um, does this mean that you could lose a lot of money? Um, I mean, Pride Edinburgh is a charity um, and it's provided, you know, the whole event is free for people to attend. Um, obviously, our partners and sponsors pay for us to put on this event for all these many people. Um, in terms of money loss for us, it would be mainly from the headline acts at the festival part of the event. Um, and six of those will be traveling by train uh, from Glasgow, Manchester and London. So if, if the train strikes does happen, that means we have one person performing for six hours. <laughs> well, Jamie, you're just one example of, of the kind of chaos and upset and disappointment that I fear is going to sweep the country in the midsummer week of the year this month. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Now, last night I touched on the fact that on a particular service station on the M20 in Kent, that diesel had hit two pounds a litre. And I saw today in the newspapers, other stations around the country, that 204 was the highest that I saw. Um, the fuel prices this afternoon at Weatherby Services, and that's up there on the A1. Yep, that was through two pounds a litre, one of the busy A1 service stations. Now, I've been struggling for the last couple of weeks, and I've been saying to you that I can't work out why diesel is disproportionately so much more expensive than petrol. But I think I've now got to the bottom of it. The link between the spot price of crude oil, and that's around about 120 bucks a barrel, it hasn't gone up over the course of the last couple of weeks at all. The link between the spot price and what we're paying at the pumps has been broken to a certain extent. And that is because we have a massive problem with refining. UK refining of oil and oil products has been in steep decline. Several major refineries have closed. And when it comes to UK refinery capacity, capacity utilisation, look at this graph. It's fallen sharply. Do you know why this is, folks? It's because this nation that produces less than 1% of global CO2 has decided we're going to save the planet by not refining our own diesel here, but by importing it from 
Have a guess where a large chunk of it comes from. Yes, of course, it's Russia. And that is where the squeeze on supplies, and it's happening not just with diesel, it's happening with unleaded too. And if anyone thinks that stopping our own UK refining abilities and farming it out to Russia or the rest of the world is somehow saving the planet, that is for the birds. It does not work. This stuff is still being produced and then it gets shipped to the United Kingdom. But there we are. Boris wanted us all to go green and we're now beginning to pay the price for it. Well, joining me is Marco Forgione, CEO of the Institute of Export and International Trade. Marco, these prices are almost bewildering to people, aren't they? It's, it's beyond comprehension. If, if, if we thought just, just uh, 18 months ago where the price now is, we, we, you, you would never have believed Or it. even a month ago. Or even a month ago. And, and, you know, with the prices going up on a daily basis. And uh, this is having a real impact. That there is a genuine repercussion to, to what's happening. Uh, and that problem is happening now. And it's part of the, the, that wider cost of living crisis that, that everyone is realising. Uh, in, in our sector, where so much of the goods that we, we rely on move by road, uh, it's essential that we have a system that allows transport to be able to get the goods where they need to be. And, you know, I've got a, a, a personal example. My, my son is a type 1 uh, diabetic. Even trying to get the medicines he needs is really tricky because then the supply chain is broken. And part of that is the sheer cost of trying to move goods at the moment. I was speaking to members just last week, uh, and they are not able to get their goods moved because of the cost, because of the price, and you've got hauliers who are now not able to provide the service because of the cost uh, yeah, of the I mean, diesel I, fuel. I heard somewhere that for a big lorry, this increase in cost year on year is £20,000 a year more for, for each vehicle. As it is now. Uh, yeah. And the price is continuing to rise. Uh, now, look, everyone, wherever you sit in, in the, 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 the views on whether we should be going green, the sustainability and the environmentalism, wherever you sit on that, surely the priority has got to be to ensure that we have a fuel resilience and we cannot just switch off uh, what we're currently using and hope that we can transfer to either electric uh, or to biofuel. There is a process and a transfer that needs which, to take which, place. Over which we're happy to see happen, but we're not there yet, are we? No, no. Uh, huge strides are being made, but we are not there. Uh, and, and frankly, over 35% over of the cost of, of diesel is in duties, and surely... It's time now for the Chancellor to look at this and take action to ensure that we have a resilient and sustainable uh, yeah. supply chain. I think cutting duties would help, uh, but I also think the big problem for the refineries, of course, are the electricity prices. Mm. Our electricity prices are some of the highest in the world, much higher than our other competitors. Mm. That's because of the amount of social and green subsidy that's been put on them, and that's why we've lost so much of our own refining capacity. The only worry I've got with it, Marco, is that to turn our refining capacity around, 
would take a bit of time, wouldn't it? It takes time, it takes a significant amount of investment, and uh, it could be part of that transition period that we need to invest to, to up our, um, uh, our ability to, to refine. But in the short term, we need action now because there is a genuine, genuine problem that exists right now uh, and we've got to take action. We do need to look at the longer term. And if you look in, into the logistics sector, into the haulage sector, huge progress yeah. is being made. I was, I was in conversation yesterday with representatives of uh, Every. You know, they're investing in hydrogen, they're in, investing in biofuels, uh, but it will take time to bring all of that on stream and be part of the, you know, the, the long-term So right now, your industry says cut duty. Yeah. I think I rather agree with that, <laughs> because it's something the government can do very quickly and that would have an effect, despite the cynicism over the 5p cut and whether it really got passed on. I asked you, is this rail strike justified? And we gave you, as we always do, both sides of the argument. And you make your own minds up. One viewer says, we really should move to driverless trains. See how they can continue to strike them. Well, it's not just the train drivers, is it? Stuart says, no, should not be allowed. It is causing trouble to people who are just trying to get through life and keep a roof over their heads. Another viewer says, I'm getting a 3% pay rise as a nurse. Many folk are getting nothing though. The RMT demanding a pay rise in excess of 11% in the current climate looks both self-indulgent and massively entitled. I agree with you. Nick says, their strike deliberately targets the public for the maximum effect with minimum impact on rail workers. Stop the monopoly that unions have. And finally, Alex says, the union's doing Starmer's job for him as he stays silent trying to bring down the government with strikes. Deplorable. And it is interesting that the Labour Party have been absolutely silent on this and not quite knowing what to say. Now, after all the dramas we've had this week, uh, with 148 people voting no confidence in the Prime Minister, he was back today at the dispatch box and really behaving and performing as if absolutely nothing had happened. No, it was vintage Boris, and you can take that in a good way or a bad way. Let's have a look. Let's have a listen to Keir Starmer talking about a lack of GPs in the country. It starts with GPs. People were unhappy with the service they were getting before the pandemic. Not enough GPs. Too hard to get an appointment. That's why he promised 6,000 new GPs. But his health secretary admits he won't keep that promise. Despite the hard work of doctors, people can't see a GP in person. They're unhappier than ever with GP services. If GP provision was wanting and inadequate before the pandemic, what is it now? So that was Keir Starmer asking a very simple question about GPs. And here is Boris's, vintage Boris's answer. Uh, that uh, thanks to the investments that this government has put in, uh, we now have 4,300 more 
doctors. Uh, we have record numbers. We have record numbers in uh, in training. Uh, and I, to the best of my right, we have 11,800 more nurses this year than last year, Mr. Speaker, and 72,000 72, in training. And that is because of the investment uh, that we put in, uh, which was opposed by the party opposite. And the only reason we were able to make that investment, Mr. Speaker, is because we have a strong and robust economy. Thanks, thanks to the decisions we took. And it's vintage, Boris, because he's confident. He brushes it all aside. He gives you numbers. He gives you optimism. It's Boris at his best. It's just that it's not true. That's all. No, we check the figures. And for the year between March 2021 and April 2022, there was a net decrease in the number of GPs in this country of 743, let alone the numbers that are leaving NHS dentistry. But none of it seems to matter. If you're a Boris fan, the facts just don't matter. It's the confidence, it's the bravado. Now, I'm one of those people who is sick to death of government interfering in every aspect of our lives, telling us what we can and what we can't do. And tomorrow, there's going to be a proposed change to the law after yet another document, research document has been done on smoking. Yes, the proposal will come tomorrow that nobody should be allowed to buy cigarettes until at least the age of 2021. And the aim is to make the country smoke-free by 2030. This is following very much in the pattern of New Zealand, uh, where anybody born in recent years will never, ever legally be allowed to buy cigarettes. Old drugs and cocaine will be no problem at all. They're not legal, but no one cares. Do we really need government interference to this level. Does it do any good? I can't stand it. I hate the modern-day Puritans, but maybe, just maybe, there's a health argument in favour of it. So let's hear what it is. And Dr Robert Lefevre is with me, former GP and addiction specialist. Good evening, Robert. Good evening to you, Nigel. Now, nobody's pretending that cigarettes or excess alcohol or donuts or lack of exercise or any of these things are good for you. But does it actually work when governments interfere, when governments raise, raise the legal age at which we can buy things or ban things? Does it actually make any difference? Government regulation will never change the hardcore of smokers. People who have addictive natures, that's about one in six of the population, that's a huge number of people, are not interested in what they cost or where they can get them, they will find somehow. There already is a significant black market in cigarettes that will increase. Nicotine is a mood-altering chemical, like alcohol or sugar or recreational drugs. And people increase the use of these substances during times of stress. And we've all had immense stress during the pandemic. But young women are a particular group because they use nicotine in order to suppress their appetite. Their greatest fear is of putting on weight. So if government regulation could solve that problem, um, they're doing better than all the doctors, and I just don't believe it. So is education a better way forward than bringing in new limits, new age limits, and putting the onus on shopkeepers to check everybody's ID? 
Yes, very much so. And I think the education has to be properly targeted towards telling people about the 12-step program of addiction recovery. Because if one in six of the population have an addiction problem, uh, we need to have this taught in schools, the same as it is in America. Um, there's nothing strange about that. Why do we learn about the kings of England and about the number of wives that Henry VIII had and quadratic equations and things? We'll never learn. We'll never use those. But to learn how to deal appropriately with our feelings by working a 12-step program, if we have got an addictive nature, that is vital. And that could solve it, whereas governments can't. That's the most positive contribution to this debate I've ever heard, Dr. Robert Lefevre. And thank you for coming on and putting it forward. It's a theme that we're going to return to. Thank you very much indeed. Now, remember, a few weeks ago, we got through to the second round of the French presidential elections and mainstream media were throwing their hands up in horror. The far-right Marine Le Pen could become the next French president. Of course, it didn't happen, although it's noticeable that with each French presidential election, her votes get bigger. But what very few in this country noticed is that she only just made the second round. There is the leader, and he's a hard-left political leader, arguably way to the left of Jeremy Corbyn, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, Mélenchon, and he, you know, she just pipped him to get into the second round. Now, we now face the Assemblée Nationale elections. I've literally seen almost zero coverage in the United Kingdom about this. The first round is coming up on Sunday, and it's about time we had a look at the numbers to see what's going to happen. And I'm very pleased to say that joining me from Paris is David Chazan, freelance journalist, writes for The Telegraph, amongst many other publications. David, please educate, enlighten the British public as to what's happening over the course of the next two Sundays. Well, Nigel, I think what's happened in terms of UK coverage of this election is that until just a few days ago, it had been assumed that President Macron's centrist party was set to win a parliamentary majority, which it already holds. Not much of a story there. But in the past few days, that's looked in doubt because Jean-Luc Mélenchon's Green and Leftist Alliance, there's a number of parties, including socialists, communists and environmentalists, um, look as though they're very, very close to President Macron's group. Now, according to the opinion polls, they're unlikely to win the parliamentary majority that Jean-Luc Mélenchon says would force President Macron to name him prime minister, but they could easily rob Mr. Macron's party of the majority it needs to govern effectively. And that would mean that you would have a situation where a newly elected French president could not get any legislation through? Well, it would certainly be very difficult for him to get legislation through. However, if you look at where the other uh, groups are in Parliament, let's assume that President Macron's party comes first, the leftist alliance second, uh, third would probably be the centre-right Republicans, more or less like the Conservatives in the UK. That would make them the kingmakers. They would be likely to have some kind of alliance, even though it might be a little bit uncomfortable, with President Macron's party. Yeah. So 
that would mean that Macron could probably press ahead with his e business friendly economic reforms. But let's say his uh, <clears throat> margin of maneuver would be somewhat more restri yeah. restricted than it has been during his first term. Now, Melanchol surprised everybody in that first round of the French presidential election. <clears throat> and from, from what you say, he's on a bit of a roll again. If he was to continue that role, if he was to become the French Prime Minister, what kind of policies would he be pushing? I hear that he supports top-rate tax at 90%. Absolutely. I mean, you were very right to compare him to Jeremy Corbyn. He's quite close to Mr Corbyn. Corbyn actually visited Paris last weekend at really? the behest of uh, uh, Mélenchon's alliance. Uh -huh. And uh, that may have backfired against Mr Mélenchon because there were a lot of objections from the centre-left and the Socialist Party who are part of his alliance because they object to Corbyn over the way Labour handled the anti-Semitism allegations under his leadership. Now, conservative commentators say that Mélenchon is a classic tax and spend leftist and his economic policies are simplistic they say and they would ruin France and they accuse him of making pie in the sky promises many of them uh, and you can agree or disagree with this, compare those kinds of promises with the sorts of pledges that some British politicians made over Brexit. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, David. We're going to watch with great interest what happens in Paris on Sunday. And I would argue to you, the audience at home, Melanchol's got more chance of becoming prime minister than Marine Le Pen had of becoming president. Just a quick thought from me. After PMQs today, Parliament entered into a five-hour debate on levelling up and, in particular, on a shortage of housing. Not one member of Parliament in a five-hour our debate made the connection, made the link between a lack of social housing in this country and the fact that net migration means we need to build 750 new houses every single day. Not one MP has made the connection between a population that has risen by 10 million since Blair came to power and the number of houses we need to build and the fact a million people are on the social housing waiting list. That's our MPs for you, their heads buried in the sand. One or two more thoughts from you at home. Alan says the RMT are using their members as a tool against the government to support the TUC's political wing, the Labour Party. This is always said whenever there's a strike, right or wrong. Phil says it's a disgrace, unions causing trouble as usual and how Harry says, how can you possibly justify 11% wage increase and also guarantee no one will lose their job? These unions are wrecking this country. The GB News Tavern has been declared well and truly open. <laughs> and my guest this evening, before I introduce him, I want to show you him in action. Let's see him in the House of Commons. Some of the rougher elements of the house <laughs> chose to refer to the Prime Minister as chicken. I hope we've moved on. However, would the Prime Minister agree with me that it's entirely fair now to refer to him as a lame duck? Yeah! 
You see, I said he had a sense of humour, but there's passion in Stephen Pound as well. Here he is deploring the closing down of the bongs of Big Ben. We're going to really appreciate that until the next hour, when instead of the bombs, there'll be silence. And you don't know what you've got till it's gone. We didn't know there was going to be a lift in there, we didn't know there was going to be a lavatory, we didn't know any of these things. Even the Speaker of the House of Lords didn't know about it. So there's something seriously, seriously wrong here. ...to Parliament, to Westminster, to the heart of our nation, to the heart of our democracy. We need that sound. Stephen Powell, welcome to Talking Pints. Very <laughs> good, good to see you. Now... When we think of MPs these days, we think of, you know, universities. Why, why would we think of MPs? Well, we have to. We're forced to. <laughs> I, I'm going to come on to their characters. You have some trouble getting to sleep. <laughs> but we think of Oxbridge, mm. PPE, mm. Uh, nice job in a research office or a mm. think tank. Mm. Um, and then at sort of 28, maybe, you fight your first seat, mm -hmm. MP at 30. So where does 10 years as a hospital porter, leaving school at 15, working on the buses, going to sea, where does that fit in? Yeah, well, where where well, did well, I go wrong? Well, this is great. So you left school at 15 and went to sea. Yeah. People used to do that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I didn't have much choice. I had nine brothers and sisters. And um, my dad sent me around the, down the bottom of the road to get some fags. And I came back and they'd moved. I mean, it's just... <laughs> No, funny enough, my dad actually took me to the Royal Naval Recruiting Office in Hoban, um, and it was years later I realised he got himself a return to Fulham Broadway and me a single. <laughs> um, because in those days, to be honest, they'd pretty much take anybody. So off you go. You do all these things, yeah. all these different jobs. You say hospital porter, bus conductor, goodness knows what else. And you decide to become a mature student. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. Um, I spent 10 years at the Middlesex, and um, Middlesex Hospital. Yep. And uh, it was a tricky time because we had uh, all the health strikes were going on and we had, you know, we're not going to let uh, the health secretary have a cup of tea and it's all getting a bit stupid. And on one day, there were, there were three of us, Jamie Morris from New from uh, Nalgo, um, a guy called Bernie Grant um, from, yeah. from Newpe, and me. And Jeremy Corbyn was around too, but he was a slightly peripheral figure because he was a bit of a purist in those days. And on the same day... Not uh, much changes, though. Not, <laughs> you know, well, no, no, he, he, you know, he believed you don't sort of change the system, you smash it. And... Um, we all got the sack on the same day. And Bernie got the sack because he was diabetic, he had a lot of time off sick. Jamie had had a cup of tea on the nurse's station. And uh, I'd, amazingly, I'd refused to take a patient out of the lift to let the consultant travel up to the theatre on his own in the lift. You know, and I said, you're having a laugh. I mean, I went a bit farage on him. I said, you know, I'm sorry, you can't have that. <laughs> and we all got the tin tack on the same day. And then our union said, look, you had it. Jamie wanted to open a newsagent and tobacconist in Hoxton. Bernie wanted to be an MP and I wanted to go to college because I'd left school at 15, no O-levels. And so they said, well, we're going to send you to the City Literary Institute. And I said, no, I'm you know, above my pay grade there. But I went there and for God knows how I passed. I went to the London School of Economics. Yeah. Um, got a degree. Yeah, well done. And then somebody left it on a bus. And I it's more than I've got. <laughs> Are you serious? But you went to Dulwich. I think, I think, no, I went straight to work. I went straight to work. I didn't do university. I went straight to work. And I had no intention of ever getting into politics. Was it anything you'd ever thought about? Well, no, but, but hang on a sec. You went to the same school as Raymond Chandler and P.G. Woodhouse. I know, I know. Although if they were alive, they'd say we went to the same school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But, yeah. no, I went straight to the world of work. That's what I chose yeah, to do. Yeah, but you were metal straight, weren't you? I was, yeah. I went, Is that I'm, like a scrap metal merchant? Uh, it was a little bit more... It was easier than that. It was easier than that. It was in London and wearing suits, you yeah, know. Okay. But, Stephen, yeah. you finish up. Yeah. You finish up, yeah. and you've had this sort of blooding with the union yeah. and all the things. Yeah. You finish up as a member of Parliament. Yeah. <laughs> and you spend 22 years there as a member of Parliament. I mean, you started off with a little joke about it. What do you make of most MPs? 
It's difficult because, I mean, you put your... The sum and sum, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the majority of MPs, amazingly, and this may seem counterintuitive, but they are actually motivated by a desire to make things better. There are some who are the most venal, idle, entitled so-and-sos you'll ever meet on God's green earth. And it's, you know, they've eaten rifles, you know, down the House of Commons in your brand-new shoes. There are some people who actually feel they're born to it. It's amazing how many MPs are either cousins or aunts or grandmothers, you know, related to... Other MPs and Nigel, it's that, that's on both sides of the house. Oh, good God, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah there's plenty of public school boys. I mean, when I came into the house, we had three old Etonian Labour MPs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, probably more than there were on the other side. But um, <laughs> no, I mean. <laughs> It's interesting because I, when I was a councillor back where I'm in Ealing, and it was back back in the back in the 80s, and I just felt really angry that the, the investment wasn't coming in the schools, all things. And I just thought, you know, if you're going to do something, basically there's two sorts of people in life. There's the people who sit on the sofa and have a moan, and the people who say, well bugger this, I'm going to do something. Mm. And I felt I've actually had to go and do something. And um, it was... That, you know, it's a bit like you. You know, you, you come into politics not because you want a, an easy ride, because you want to change the flipping system. Absolutely. But mind you, you're much more radical than me now, I have to say. Much more. In radical. what way? You want to abolish the House of Lords? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm almost a leveller now. Yeah, but hang on a second. Yeah, they offered you the House of Lords. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Stephen, you are right. For me, actually, for me, and you're right, I came into politics, yeah. I thought the European thing was the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Now we've done it, I'm a real radical. Yeah, I want you, to you also it. want to bring in proportional representation, don't you? Oh, I think the alternative part, vote. Or... I th- do you know what? I think the first past the post system is bankrupt mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. We're not really voting, Stephen, in my opinion, for MPs for a constituency. Mm-hmm. We're voting for or against party leaders. Mm-hmm. That connection, I think, has been lost. But there still should be. Because you, you would have won a couple of your elections if you'd had alternative votes. Oh, look, you know... What a nightmare. The House of Commons just... I'm sorry, there wasn't, it wasn't ready well, for you. I had, a lot of fun in the, I had a lot of fun in the European Parliament, but I couldn't yeah, have yeah. I, I seem more. to remember a speech you made comparing the leader to a... To the president to a wet dishcloth, wasn't it? A damp rag. A damp rag. <laughs> How is that different to a lame duck? <laughs> you know, I mean, everyone says I was so aggressive. Well, mine was a bit more paltry, I see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and Vince Cable said that, you know, Gordon Brown had become Mr Bean. And, but this is all yeah. the banter yeah. and the knockabout. Yeah. I mean, you were there mm. in those years when mm. Labour... Mm. And Blair was... I mean, Blair was an astonishing campaigner. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, and with, with Mandelson, Campbell, you can agree or vehemently disagree with what mm. they did. Mm. But my goodness me, as an electoral machine, I mean, they were absolutely extraordinary. Well, Tony Blair was also very, very quick on his feet. We were getting a hammering one day on the European Union. And people were, people were shouting out from the other side. And he pretended that one of the Tories had said, what about Norway? And, and of course, he said, no, Norway's not in the European Union. And of course, nobody had said it was. You know, but it brought the house down. But he was, he's amazing. I remember his first by-election um, in Beaconsfield. Uh, yeah. It was the same night as the QPR game. It was, it was a replay. And, of course, you know, he said, can you take me to the, the most Labour ward? He said, well, there isn't a Labour ward. He said, well, you know, about the most you know, Labour street. And I said, well, pushing it. <laughs> about the most Labour house. <laughs> but we went, of course, the first door we knocked on, the bloke said, clear off, mate, we're watching the game. Yeah. And, of course, by the time we got to the third door, he said, hello, fellow Hoops fans. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, was, so he's a chameleon, he was, was he? No, he was, <laughs> he was very, very clever. I mean, he knew I was, I was big fan. I mean, my two teams are Hamiltown FC and, and, and Fulham, who both play in black and white. He knew and about Fulham, them. what a season. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, we're up and down like I was saying. But what a season. Yeah. I mean, yeah. wow. It's yeah. been pretty cool. 44 goals for Mitro. Pretty cool. <laughs> Mind you, Hamiltown have been promoted too. Have they? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, no, next season we're going to be playing in places like Swindon and Truro. Oh, how exciting. And, and no. Or, no. No, no, no. You can go visit <laughs> and watch them all. But the one thing about Blair, and, and it's his legacy in a way, and, and you know, Iraq, it's never going to leave him, but this is something you feel very badly about too, isn't it? That day, 
you know, March the 18th, 2003, um, will haunt me till the day I die. Because people came to my surgery and they said, are you gonna do something or are you gonna do nothing? He's killed a million people. He's gassed the Kurds at Halabja. Yeah. You, the British, drew the boundaries. You drew, you created Iraq. You drew the lines you in did. the sand. Are you gonna stand by and do nothing? Are you gonna walk by on the other side of the road? Are you gonna do something? And that night we had an amazing speech from Anne Cluid, who had just come back from Iraq, and Tony Blair made the speech which you know, it just swept the house forward. And I voted for that. Had I known that Iraq was a pressure cooker, and the minute you took the lid off, it just exploded. I, I, I had this vision of like Paris in 1945. Do you remember when the American soldiers came in and these beautiful women in berets and red lipstick were putting flowers <laughs> down, you know, down the end of the barrels. But it was a catastrophic error. But I still genuinely believe that Tony Blair acted out of the, the best intentions there. It, it wasn't about oil. And obviously it, did, it didn't create um, the Twin Towers, you know, the, but it's, I, I think he actually meant to do the right thing. But when Alistair Campbell talked about sexing it up and he talked about, yeah. you know, the idea that they could, they could hit us. Well, the sheer cynicism of yeah. this. It was, yeah, I'm afraid so. Uh, that's, yeah. you know, but I, hey, you know, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Now you talk about until the day you die, but you've made this remarkable health change in your life. And I did a, a section a moment ago on, they're gonna try and raise the age, people can yeah. buy cigarettes to 21. Now you were a proper smoker, but you've given it up, haven't you? Hardcore, well, it, the, the glorious thing was in, in, in the Navy, um, if you were under 18, you weren't allowed the tot, you know, the, the rum right. ration. Yeah. Um, your, your mother got 16 and fourpence a month in lieu of the tot, but you got 100 senior service in a hermetically sealed tin with a blue line down the side, known as pusser's gaspers. And it had a blue line so you couldn't sell them. Um, so I think the idea was it actually prevented the, the Royal Navy paying out a lot of pensions. But no, I, kept, I mean, semi-seriously, when we had the vote, I, I made a big speech against... I remember. The, yeah. I remember. And it, it actually, anyway, the, the, that morning, my daughter is very young, was walking down from her bedroom with all these polythene bags. And she said, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to do this anymore, Dad. And it turned out that at primary school, she was covering her uniform in a polythene bag because I was sitting in my little study smoking away. And the smoke would actually, she'd go to school and people would say, oh, God, you've been smoking. <laughs> you know, and, and of course, they, they thought she had a 40 a day fact, habit. I remember your speech, mm. and I get it, it was a humorous yeah. speech that you were about getting on the bus and the bus stop yeah. and all that, and having <laughs> a cigarette. I say you were sort of 50 a day man all your life. Yeah. Mm. How, how did you stop? Well, it's, it's we, we've just had the addiction yeah, specialist I know, on yeah. Well, there was a guy called Dr. Taylor, who was one of the very few independent members of parliament, and he represented yes. the Save Kidderminster Hospital that's campaign. Right, that's and he right. told me what's in the average cigarette. And, I, you know, when he's, once he's got to the cyanide and the floor sweepings and the mouse droppings, I thought, flipping neck. That's, that's why it tastes so good. But uh, what I do, I, I tried the patches. Now, that's a joke. If you're a smoker, you want a hit. You don't want a, a little background buzz. Mm. So forget that. Then I tried the, the chewing gum, but it took all my fillings out. And so, and I, I, seriously. Did it really? I, yeah, chew it up. And, and then I discovered these lozenges. And these, they're, they're absolutely marvellous, because look, you, 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 you... What, nicotine lozenge? This, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a time, I mean, there's a couple of occasions, and I won't go into details, when you really want a cigarette, you know, after, after you've enjoyed yourself. Um, I mean, I'm talking about a meal, obviously. Obviously, <laughs> as we're pre-the-watershed, clearly, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, a lozenge that gives you that little buzz, a little bit of a hit. Mm. And then, you just, mind you, I was on the bloody lozenges for three and a half years. Well, you've done it, you've done well, yeah. but you've now given up yeah. being an MP, mm. and... I remember Tony Benn saying he was leaving the House of Commons to do serious politics, and you've stopped being an MP to now take real power, I understand. Oh, yes. 
for the first time. I mean, I'd spent, what, 20 odd years in Northern Ireland. You know, I had a, a few positions. I brought bills through the House of Commons. I took the high hedges legislation through, much to the distrust of the Essex Federation of Naturists who felt that they were going to be overexposed. Um, but I, I had to say their bushes were safe. But, anyway, <laughs> but um, I am now, and I hardly know how to say this, um, I'm the, the chairman of the Framfield Allotment Association Committee. Goodness me. I mean, now, believe you me, we have a massive waiting list. And I, I look at people's plots and I say, excuse me, are you really cultivating this to the high standards we expect? I'm, I'm also on the committee of... And there's a waiting list for this stuff. Oh, yeah. good. God, for, for an allotment in London? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I've been offered sexual favours. <laughs> you know, but, you know, he was about 70 years old and I didn't fancy him. But, you know, you, you do get... But to, to actually have that, I mean... And it, it is quite extraordinary. I mean, I've always had an allotment, but now to spend a bit of time and actually, I mean, my strawberries at the moment, I mean, I'm taking about two pounds of strawberries up every two or three days. Are you really? Well, it's incredible. Of course, we had a, you know, a, a mild winter, a lot of rain, a lot of sun. Yep. Uh, I mean, and my broad beans are coming, runner beans are starting to show, chilies are growing, you know, my early potatoes have been lifted. Can't be bad. Well, I've yeah. got to tell you, I've got some radishes on the go. I've got the carrots in, tomatoes. Really? So I'm doing a little Should, bit. I'm not at all surprised because, of course, radish comes from the word radix, which is the same root as radical. There so we basically, are. Farage's radical veggies. <laughs> do you miss politics? I miss some of the people, mate. Um, do you? Sorry, no. I, I know I shouldn't be asking. No, that. I don't, yeah, actually. Yeah. No, I don't. I mean, I had great fun in the European mm. Parliament. Mm. Um, caused a hell of a stir. Mm. But it was of its time. I've moved on. I'm doing this. I'm loving this. Mm. I'm still involved in current affairs. But you were the complete outsider. Oh, totally. I'm sorry to say this, but I mean, you no, were, no, yeah. happy to be. Yeah. I mean, I can still remember going there when when, um, when Ian Paisley was attacking the Pope, mm. and that and, and, and mm. the uh, he said, you know, Monsieur Paisley, I will uh, switch your microphone. My microphone's not on. <laughs> and I can remember you cracking up there. But you know, but you were the, the total outsider, and I, I, yes. I don't say that as an insult. I say that as a compliment. I mean, when I got to Parliament, I realised I'm not public school. You know, I'm not Oxbridge. You know, I'm going to be a little bit. The only people I got on really well with were the old Bill. Um, I got absolutely fine well with him. So much so that there was used to be a guy called Brian Hoare who was outside. I he was, remember was, him. Yeah. Do you remember? He was constantly... Yeah. And, and he came up and he spat in my face once. And I said, you know, you do that again, son, I'm going to drop you. Anyway, so next thing I know, he's put in this big complaint. So the old Bill pulled me over the next day. He said, Mr. Pound, he said, we had a complaint about aggressive behaviour from somebody. We've got a description here. Short, bald, stocky with a West London accent. We can't find anyone who matches that description. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, I love it. Stephen Pound, thank you for joining me yeah. on Talking Pines. Oh, it's gone. It's gone. It's all well done, you. Thank you, sir. It goes me, Jameson's. <laughs>we're not a Labour Sir party. Keir Starmer is with the yeah. working class. Well, where did he come from? It's like he was a Kent boy, isn't he? Yeah, I know. All right, well, there we are, Stephen yeah. Pound. You can't stop him. Luckily, <laughs> we've run out of time, because otherwise it would go on forever.